Welcome along to 20 Minute Topic. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. Well, it's been an eventful few days with the Brexit process and a lot is likely to happen in the days ahead. So that inevitably is what dominates the discussion in this podcast. Greg, it's been an extraordinary week in that we now have a situation after what's happened on Monday in Parliament where Boris Johnson has been forced to accept an extension he didn't want from the EU, the flex extension until the end of January. Labour, who have been pushing for a general election for most of this year, have had the opportunity to call one, yet have not done so. They abstained from voting um, in, in today's motion in Parliament. These are very strange times we live in. I agree. Um, but Boris Johnson had promised us he would deliver Brexit by October the 31st. He, like the rest of us, has obviously overestimated the integrity of members of parliament um, because most of the members of parliament, and basically about 600 of them, were voted in on manifestos uh, that categorically stated they would honour the people's vote. That's true, and we had a situation today in the House of Commons, and I watched most of the, de- the debate, where we had the Liberal Democrat leader Joe Swinson and Ian Blackford, the SNP leader, saying, we don't trust the Prime Minister, he hasn't kept his promises. Well, whose fault is that? They are the ones that have been blocking him every step of the way when he negotiated a deal, presented it before Parliament. They are the ones who stopped him honouring his own promises. The interesting thing is that if they stood up in Parliament and said, the leader of our government is a liar, they would be called to order. Hmm. But they can stand up and say exactly the same thing by saying, we don't trust our Prime Minister to, to tell us the truth without one shred of evidence of him having told a single lie in Parliament. But so far as what's gone on with the Brexit process, Boris Johnson has done his bit by negotiating a new deal and putting it before Parliament, and yet it is the likes of Swinson and Blackford who put obstacles before him every step of the way. That's been the story of the autumn so far since Parliament returned after the summer recess. But what we saw today, I think, in Parliament was an act of real dishonesty from the Labour Party because mid-afternoon they announced that they would be whipping their members to abstain from the motion to dissolve Parliament under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. Now, that was dishonest because the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act of 2011 categorically states that a two-thirds majority is needed to dissolve Parliament, and that's not a two-thirds vote, that's a two-thirds of all members of the House of Commons. So you bear in mind that the Sinn Féin MPs do not take their seats at any time. By Labour abstaining, they are effectively voting against. But rather than have the guts to vote against and declare their position honestly, they abstained. Now, a lot of people, the general public, won't understand how the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act works and won't understand the fact that it requires a two-thirds majority of the whole of the House of Commons for a dissolution of Parliament. But Labour did not declare their hand honestly. They did it in quite a cowardly way, I think. I think it was totally duplicitous, but that's Labour for you, isn't it? Yeah, but this is one of the big problems of the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, which is why it's one of the worst pieces of legislation certainly for the last 100 years that's gone through the House of Commons. This is one of many, many problems it causes. And I think what we really need is a government of any colour, whatever happens in a forthcoming general election, once Brexit is done and dusted, 
to repeal the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, though there are complications along the way with that as well, because various precedents have been set in the last few years, but to repeal it because it's been a very bad piece of legislation. It used to be the case that a straightforward vote of no confidence in the government could be called, and if they lost that by one vote, as Jim Callaghan's government did in 1979, a general election would follow. This Fixed-Term Parliaments Act makes it all the more complicated, and we had this farcical situation today where two-thirds majority, not of those who voted, but the entire membership of the Commons was needed for it to be dissolved, and Labour could play what I think is a very deceitful thing to do, where they instructed their members to abstain. And I think that was fundamentally dishonest to their own voters. Oh, I think I think it was utterly duplicitous, because... Um they're just trying to sit on the fence and accept no responsibility for any of their uh, Machiavellian behaviour and utter stupidity. We're recording this podcast on Monday evening and unfortunately it's likely to date quite quickly because Tuesday is going to be a busy day but every day is going to be a busy day this week potentially. What is likely to happen is that a bill will come before the House of Commons on Tuesday, a simple one-line bill calling for a general election and then this this in itself makes a mockery of the fixed term parliaments act the fact that they can do this but it's going to be a simple one-line bill which will have the support of the liberal democrats and the snp and possibly a handful of labor mps as well there's some dispute over the date of that election whether it'll be on monday the 9th or thursday the 12th of december boris johnson and the conservative leadership wanted to be on on the thursday like most elections are in this country uh, the Lib Dems and the SNP are saying it should be on the Monday. That's just it, That achieves absolutely nothing in practice, but it just shows that they're calling the shots and not the government. There's a fair chance that this one-line bill will get through, and by Tuesday evening, we'll be in general election territory. I think that government is go- um, Parliament, should I say, is going to uh, feel its tree has been somewhat rattled because... The Labour Party will be congratulating themselves on their achievement um, by running away from um, an election today. Um, The Scottish National Party and the DUP and uh, the Lib Dims will be um, feeling very pleased with themselves because uh, technically they won uh, today when in reality... They are the losers. They've come out of it looking utterly duplicitous and really rather stupid because tomorrow there will be a bill for an election because if there isn't, then they're going to find themselves, whether they like it or not, boxed into a corner by the very fact that the European Union has stated uh, effectively that the only reason they're giving them the extension is to have a general election and these clowns are standing in the way of the general election they've been clamouring to have for a very long time. One of our listeners, Stephanie Hayden, who's got a good legal brain on her, is fairly confident that this simple one-line bill will go through. Do you share her confidence? Um, I incline to, but as you say, this is fairly fast-moving, and I noticed since uh, we started recording, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg is currently standing up making the business statement in Parliament as to what's going to happen. So we're going to be out of date by the time we've actually finished recording it. Oh, yeah, we can't win no matter what we do so far as uh, podcast dating on a week like this. But we do our best. Um, I I was a bit concerned 
And, and again, I, I don't think that those who were speaking in the House of Commons earlier this evening were being particularly honest about these matters. But Jeremy Corbyn, when he responded to um, Boris Johnson after the dissolution vote, well, it didn't get the two thirds of all members needed. So Jeremy Corbyn spoke and he said, yes, he wants an election. Um, but he, he was saying the date of it, the 9th or the 12th, he said his big concern was university students will have gone home for their Christmas break by then. But I think a more natural break, and m most universities will probably do this, is Friday the 20th. That's the natural stopping point because Christmas falls the following week. I think most university students will probably still be around on the 9th or the 12th of December. But the point being, I'm very much of the view that university students should vote in the constituency where their family home is and not where they're at university. And there's a very simple reason I say that. You're at university. University itself only sits for part of the year. I recall my course was two blocks of 12 weeks, so that's 24 weeks, an exam period lasting three weeks. So that's, you're effectively there 30 weeks of the year. You're not there at all in the summer. The Christmas break is generous. The Easter break is generous. And I believe very much that because you're only living in that constituency for part of the year, for the duration of your course, whether it's three or five years, you're not really a full-time resident in that constituency. And it is therefore wrong for the full-time residents of that constituency who live there year-round for many, many years to have the value of their vote diluted by students who are living there part-time for a short period of time, really. So I'm very much of the view that university students should vote where the family home is. And I think Jeremy Corbyn knew exactly what he was doing when he said that, because he knows that students are more likely as a demographic to vote for him and his Labour Party than sitting residents in quite a few seats where there is a high student population. I totally agree with you. Um, the Labour Party is also very keen on having prisoners uh, being given the vote, um, which says a great deal about the Labour Party, doesn't it? Well, yes, but we also had a situation where we had, um, I think, Joe Swinson and Ian Blackford made the point that they believe there should be votes for 16-year-olds. Now, I've talked a lot about this elsewhere, and I've blogged about it, and I wrote an article for the Sovereignty UK website about it several years ago. When the voting age was reduced from 21 to 18 in the late 1960s, uh, Labour Prime Minister Harold Wilson knew exactly what he was doing then. It was a cynical move on his part because he thought it would help him win the 1970 general election. Well, it didn't work out that way. Edwards Heath's Conservatives won in 1970. But that was his thinking behind reducing the age to 18. Now that, that we've got Swinson and Ian Blackford saying it should be reduced to 16, well, I think they're motivated primarily by two things in Blackford's case it'll be the sort of thing a lot of teenagers do they go through that rebellious phase and jingoistic nationalism the sort of he him and his party support will be popular with them in Swinson's case she knows that they're coming out while well, they're still in school at 16 that they will have been largely brainwashed by teachers who are sympathetic to the sort of pro-EU liberal agenda that she supports Look, I don't want my country's future decided by 16-year-olds. 16-year-olds are easily manipulated. A lot of them will fall for these sort of tricks. I mean, I think back maybe five years ago, there were a significant number of 16-year-olds who would who pretty much worshipped Russell Brand. Now, thankfully, that time has passed. But this is the sort of thing I talk about. They will have done whatever Russell Brand had asked them to do five years ago. 
now we've moved on from that stage now but it just goes to show i think 18 okay you can't raise the age from eight from 18 because once people have got the vote they've got it you can't remove it from them but reducing it to 16 and the way certain people in the snp and the lib dems are trying to use this current situation as the trigger to reduce it to 16 i think is wrong we're going to have a situation where you can't if this was to come true where you can't buy a packet of cigarettes at 16, but yet you have the right to vote. That's crazy. Unfortunately, that sort of logic doesn't work because you can also say that you can uh, join the military at 16. But you can't be in active combat. Uh, no, but uh, you'll find that in times of war, you'll find 16-year-olds on many naval ships, um, even if it's only merchant navy. And if you're in a position to be... Uh, part of that machine um, at 16 should you have a vote. Uh, My answer to that is quite clearly no. Just because a child is capable of sex at 11, it doesn't mean to say they're allowed to have it. Mm. Um, And I'm afraid I put it in exactly the same terms. Um, They haven't reached the level of mature judgment to be able to differentiate between right and wrong in those instances. Mm. And uh, in political terms, um, 16-year-olds are in a field of idealism. You've only got to look at the tragic case of manipulation of Greta Thunberg and the droves of children who've turned out to, with their categoric views on climate change when they are patently and provably talking nonsense. Yes, and I always say that a parent should every evening when they're having their evening meal sit the child down at the table and ask them what they learned in school today. Now there's two reasons they should do that. The first is to make sure that they're paying attention in class and things are going in. And the second is to make sure that they're not being brainwashed by the schools. And that takes numerous forms. Are they being fed pro-EU propaganda? Are they being fed misleading information, to put it mildly, about climate change? I think that's a very important thing all parents should do each and every evening after their children have come home from school. Good God, that's not going to help all that much when you've got organisations like the BBC who are feeding people complete garbage about climate change, utter rubbish about wilding, complete drivel about education, the organisations that are set up by uh, the government and then unfortunately trusted um, to uh, be a mouthpiece are just propaganda organisations. Yes, but you're forgetting we're we're talking to 20-minute topic listeners and they're a better educated lot because we've taught them a lot over the last 19 weeks. As Ryan James, one of our loyal listeners, will testify, he says we are an education, we have told the truth and ironed out some misleading things that people have been told by the mainstream media. Um, to finish things off then, we're likely to be in election mode within 24 hours. It's, it's quite likely. And based on Professor Chris Hanratty's research, 148 Labour constituencies voted leave. Now, with that thought in mind, I want to focus on this point. 
how does the Brexit party play its hand? Because we're going to have a situation where the Conservative Party and the Brexit party could be going head-to-head in marginals. They could end up splitting the vote under the the first-past-the-post system and letting a pro-EU MP through the middle. However, in constituencies, many of those 148 Labour constituencies where the Conservative Party is a toxic brand and they haven't got a hope in hell of winning, the Brexit party could have a realistic chance if they want to punish their Labour MP who's let them down. And let's not forget, in Wales alone, support for the Labour Party has halved, according to YouGov polls, in 2019 alone. So this is how I would play it, and I want to get your thoughts on this. If I was Nigel Farage, and I'm very glad I'm not, quite frankly, I would produce a one side of A4 letter saying, I, the undersigned, agree to delivering Brexit with or without a deal by... 31st of January, so we say, well, that's the extension date. If they sign that, we will enter into a non-aggression pact with you. And we will put that signed letter on our own website, on social media feeds and what have you, so people in that constituency can see this signed in-ink pledge by whether it's the Conservative candidates or any other party where they, they have a realistic chance. That's how I would play it, but I know Nigel Farage is not going to do that. I've listened to his LBC show, which he does in the uh, early evenings, four nights a week, where he doesn't understand detail. He doesn't like Boris Johnson's deal, but he doesn't understand detail full stop. And I, I fear, quite frankly, that he's not only standing against solid Eurosceptic Conservative candidates who will vote for Boris Johnson's deal, and pragmatic Conservatives, if you like, who will also vote for Boris Johnson's deal. But they will also end up with Brexit Party candidates going up against decent people on the Labour side, like Caroline Flint. And I fear that the Brexit Party could do enormous damage in splitting the vote in a forthcoming election. Now, at the risk of being somewhat controversial, I'm ambivalent on this point. It depends whether Nigel Farage is in his ego driven greed for power mode, or um, whether he is talking some common sense. But we've got a problem now, though, haven't we? This is the final point, really. But Nigel Farage said as soon as Boris Johnson's deal was done, he cannot support it. Now, I understand Boris Johnson's deal, and it's far from perfect, but it, it gets us outside of the European Union, and we can tidy things up afterwards from outside the tent looking inwards rather than inside looking outwards. We can tidy all that up afterwards. I personally think that if we try to go for a perfect deal now, this will still be dragging on, we'll still be in the EU, and it will be five or ten years from now when the EU itself collapses as the only door out for us. Yeah, we but Nigel Farage to... doesn't see it that way. This is the problem, and this is this is what I'm really getting at here. Nigel Farage immediately opposed Boris Johnson's deal, said it was terrible, it's better to remain in the EU than to accept Boris Johnson's deal, and therefore, I, I am serious about this, I think it's likely, unless they really see sense very, very quickly on this, that we will see Brexit party candidates going up against Conservatives in marginal seats splitting the vote and letting through either a Lib Dem or a Labour candidate or whatever who is pro-EU in what were Brexit-supporting seats. And I think Nigel Farage, his ego is certainly big enough to do that and his understanding of the EU is poor enough for him to do that. And that is where I fear we are heading. Uh, I would agree with you. Um, I'd trust the Brexit party as far as I could kick them. Um, 
and uh, you only have to look at some of the the people who they have taken on. Um, look, since you mentioned um, the Welsh diaspora earlier, at um, the number of UKIP turncoats who, because they saw their position as threatened, jumped ship uh, to join uh, the Farage cult, who got elected as UKIP but are now Brexit in name. Brexit, uh, a sort of party owned by one man and funded by fairly hidden individuals with no policies on anything, but um, a clever mantra to do with leaving the European Union, exploiting the work of everybody else. I think the role of the Brexit party in any forthcoming election is going to be a topic we inevitably return to in future podcasts. My thanks as always to Greg, and my thanks to you for listening. See you next week. <laughs>